This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. And once again, welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. What is an Imaginarium? A number of you have asked me that question in emails and letters, uh, and I don't believe there's an actual definition in the dictionary for an Imaginarium, uh, but it refers to a, pl- a place, as you can imagine, that's devoted to the imagination. Uh, so there are various types of imaginaria, centers uh, that are devoted to stimulating and cultivating the imagination uh, towards scientific, commercial, recreational, or, as in the case of this program, I suppose, paranormal, metaphysical, spiritual ends, conspiratorial. So there you go, in a nutshell, imaginarium. It's kind of lonely in here tonight. Albert the intern is off. Uh, taking a much-deserved uh, night off, and uh, that means there is no HOA, no hangout on air tonight. So no pictures, just my discarnate voice and uh, that of my guest who is standing by to talk about a most remarkable, uh, somewhat controversial, probably largely misunderstood, and certainly arcane piece of ancient literature. Uh, although it's not part of the uh, biblical canon, it is ascribed by tradition to Enoch, the great-grandfather of Noah. Uh, we will talk about the uh, the book of Enoch a little bit later. Uh, Tim Spreen, of course, is here. It's not that lonely, but he's way over there on the other side of the glass. I can barely see him. Uh, so it's just you, me, the telephone, and the old-fashioned radio. Uh, I mentioned the book of Enoch and R.J. Von Bruning will be with us momentarily. He spent about a quarter of a century researching the forbidden knowledge of Enoch and the esoteric knowledge contained therein. And uh, his conclusion is that Enoch reveals that the story of humanity is far older and richer than the institutions of society have led us to believe. Uh, But before we work R.J. von Bruning into the proceedings... Let me remind you to get on up to the website, richardserrett.com, and more specifically, the slide carousel, uh, where Albert, although not here, uh, has posted a collection of fascinating stories, as usual. The one that really grabbed my attention was, or is, an expose by U.S. Senator Ben Sanders, 
who in this piece calls out 18 CEOs who took trillions in bailouts and then evaded taxes and outsourced jobs. Uh, Sanders fires back at 80 CEOs who wrote a letter lecturing America about deficit reduction uh, by releasing a report detailing how 18 of these 80 CEOs have wrecked the economy by evading taxes and outsourcing jobs. 80 CEOs first raised the ire of Senator Sanders by publishing a letter in the Wall Street Journal urging America to act on the deficit and reform Medicare and Medicaid. Senator Sanders responded to the lecture from America's CEOs again by releasing his own report that details how 18 of them have helped blow up the deficit and wreck the economy by outsourcing jobs and evading U.S. taxes. You can read all of that. Again, that's posted in the slide carousel at richardserrett.com. Now, very quickly, speaking of the website, I just want to give you plenty of advance notice. Uh, at uh, At some point this summer... RichardSerrett.com is going to be renovated, revamped, and relaunched. We're going to go in there with a wrecking ball. Well, not exactly. Uh, I, have an, I have a number of projects. Here's the problem. I have a, a number of projects and brands. Uh, there's this show, The Conspiracy Show, and the TV show, also called The Conspiracy Show. And then there is my weekly radio feature that airs on our flagship station here, AM740, called Strange Planet. And then there are the live events. Follow the truth. It's too confusing. I can't even keep them all straight. So what I'm going to do is bring everything under one banner, one brand, including the website. And it's going to be relaunched as Strange Planet. Strangeplanet.ca uh, or .tv. Uh, so no more richardserrett.com. Uh, again, it'll be strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.tv, although... If you forget and enter richardserrett.com, it should point to the new website. But that's all coming up later in the summer. I just wanted to give you a heads up on that. The Conspiracy Show app uh, is also um, very close to, uh, to completion. Well, it is completed. What we're, what, what we're waiting for is approval for one final update. And then we're ready to unveil officially. Thanks for your patience. Some of you may already have found it at uh, Google Play or Apple. Uh, the, the iTunes store, and that's great, uh, but you'll likely have to update uh, the uh, the next version in uh, very soon anyway. All right, let's talk about the Book of Enoch. Now, most of you are probably aware uh, somewhat of the first section of the Book of Enoch, and that that's about the Watchers. That describes the fall of the Watchers, the angels who fathered the Nephilim. And we've talked about the Nephilim countless times on this program. But there's much more to the Book of Enoch. And uh, R.J. von Bruning is here uh, to unveil that. He uses archaeoastronomy, religious uh, stories, ancient artifacts, and our modern understanding of human evolution to present a compelling and thought-provoking case to suggest just about everything we think we know about our origins is wrong. R.J. von Bruning is a new author amateur astronomer with an extensive technical background in the electrical industry. The forbidden knowledge of Enoch is, as I say, the product of almost 25 years of historical research into the occult, secret societies, and conspiracy theories. He lives and writes in the great state of Montana. RJ, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Great, and thanks for having me on your show. My pleasure. Uh, Now, there is some 
conflict as to the origin, in fact, of, of the Book of Enoch. Uh, it is attributed to Enoch, who was the the uh, the grandfather, or the great-grandfather, rather, of Noah. So some say, well, then it must have been written before the flood, and this would go back uh, many thousands of years ago. Others, uh, Western scholars, say, no, it's more likely dating uh, from about 300 B.C., uh, and perhaps the Book of Parables, which is another part of the Book of Enoch, maybe uh, to as recently as the first century B.C. When do you believe? Give me a date uh, before I... we proceed. I have to go with the more traditional idea that Enoch, that the Book of Enoch is ancient, that it may actually predate the Flood. Predate the Flood. All right. Well, if it was, in fact, uh, written by Enoch, and he was uh, the great-grandfather of Noah, then it would have to be uh, pre-Flood. Give us a a, a sense of who uh, Enoch was. Well, Enoch is described in the Bible uh, briefly, very briefly, in the book of Genesis, and just as you had just covered, uh, he was the great-grandfather of Noah. Uh, He is mentioned again in the New Testament, and there really isn't much in the biblical text about him. Um, Most everything we know about Enoch comes directly from the book of Enoch, and basically what's been drug along within the Judeo-Christian tradition with him. Um, in the book of Enoch, he's described as a scribe, uh, and that he wrote approximately 365 books, which is kind of interesting because he is said to have lived 365 years before he was taken away from Earth by God himself. So that's kind of an interesting little thing for an esoteric tie-in, because there's always a significance that it's equal to the, the, the numbers in the year. Right. Now, why isn't it, or or maybe, uh, let me back up, uh, when did uh, Enoch uh, sort of get discarded or kicked out of the, the consideration for inclusion in the biblical canon? Although there are some, um, I'm Greek Orthodox, I, I know the, the um, Ethiopian Orthodox Church and the Eritrean Orthodox Church include Enoch in the biblical canon, but uh, for the most part, it is excluded. Uh, When did that happen and why? Um, The book of Enoch was at one time in the Western canon and was accepted scripture. In 364 AD is when it was removed, and it was removed with eventually what became known as the pseudo-acropical Texas. Uh, In fact, all these books at one time were used by the early Catholic Church in the Western world but in 364, they were removed. Uh, the reason Enoch was removed is predominantly for two reasons. One is just because of all the information it gave about the fall of the Watchers, and it did give a lot of other details that basically conflicted with the biblical story of the flood. So the Church really didn't like that, and people were really kind of coming more to hear the fire and brimstone, angels falling from heaven stories instead of hearing the sermons. So it was becoming kind of a distraction. And then when the book was actually removed, the church, actually the there's writings that still exist that they speak that, speak about it was removed because of the idea it presents and the way it was written. Because it was written in the first person, and that's 
vastly different than the rest of the biblical text. And Enoch has a one-on-one relationship with God and the angels. He, he, he talks to them and sees them and looks at them and hangs out with them on a regular basis. And that presents a very dangerous idea, especially to the early Catholic Church, that you don't need a priest or the Church to have a relationship with God. So that's basically why it was removed out of the canon. And then after it was removed out of the canon, it just kind of fell out of circulation and just slowly disappeared over the centuries, that by the middle of the Middle Ages, it just had completely disappeared in the Western world. Now, uh, parts of it, uh, the Book of Enoch, certainly are almost as inscrutable a riddle as uh, Revelation. Um, we should take some time, and because there, there are, I guess, basically five parts uh, uh, to the Book of Enoch. Uh, and, and as I mentioned earlier, most of us are somewhat familiar, at least, with the Book of the Watchers. Uh, maybe you could give us a little bit of a guided tour, just a thumbnail sketch of what each of these five sections uh, is about. Um, well, like you had said, the first section had basically covered the fall of the Watchers, um, the second part essentially covers the flood of Noah, providing additional details about it, uh, more kind of personal stories. The I'm trying to remember off the top of my head because I predominantly concentrate on the last part of the Book of Enoch. Oh, that would be the Epistle, uh, the Epistle of Enoch. Well, or, the, the, or the dream the, visions. The dream yeah, visions. Yeah, the dream vision is mainly what I concentrate on. Okay. All right. Well, we, we will uh, concentrate on that. Uh, when we come back, we'll continue our conversation with R.J. Von Bruning, The Forbidden Knowledge of Enoch. We'll talk a little bit about the Watchers, uh, who were the Watchers, who were the Nephilim, and then we'll talk about the Book of Dream Visions, also called the Book of Dreams, part of the Lost Book of Enoch, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. All right, this is a, a book that is 25 years uh, in the making. Uh, so you, as you can imagine, we are only going to not even scratch the surface. The Forbidden Knowledge of Enoch, R.J. Von Bruning, joins us from the great state of Montana. And uh, uh, the, the book of the Watchers, Let, let's just take a few moments uh, and, and uh, talk about the Watchers. Who were the Watchers? The Watchers are traditionally viewed as the fallen angels or who eventually become the fallen angels, with their leader being remembered as Satan, or Lucifer, as he's traditionally called, and also known as the bringer of light, or the light bringer, with the light typically representing knowledge, that this being brought knowledge, and this story is pretty central to most ancient astronaut theories and kind of a mystery and a focus point in most of the history, and a big focus point within the book of Enoch. Uh, traditionally, as probably as most of your listeners know, that the Watchers are also recorded as the sons of God in the Bible, and we are told that they eventually take women wives and have offspring. The Nephilim. The Nephilim. And the Nephilim are... Uh, these are giants, are they not? A race of giants? Um, According to some translations or interpretations? In some translations, 
I personally interpret it that going more with the oral traditions, that the first offspring were much like their fathers, that they were very godlike, that they were tall, they were blonde, blue-eyed, and kind of what you think of an angel when you hear the word. It is when they take human wives and their offspring become the giants. Now, there's a number of people who probably would debate that, but either way, it's still that both groups are offsprings of these same fallen watchers whether or not it's a generation or two removed. Right. And, and as you uh, uh, point out, uh, this, this section of Enoch really has given rise, along with some other uh, ancient texts, the, the cumiforms from, uh, from Sumeria, and we're all familiar with the work of Zechariah Sitchin, um, this has given rise to the, the ancient uh, alien uh, theory. Uh, now, where do you come in on, on this in terms of, uh, I mean, who do you think the Watchers were? Because I, one of the problems I have with the idea that these were fallen angels who commingled with the daughters of men and produced offspring is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a great student of the Bible or as, as much as I should be, but to me, it doesn't make sense that uh, a spirit entity, an, an angel, uh, could produce offspring or could you know, could commingle with, with a mortal, a human. I think that's, you kind of have to take an ancient viewpoint with this. The ancients didn't view most of these beings as spiritual like we do today. They, they viewed them and described them as actual physical entities that you could interact with them, that they were just as real as us, flesh and blood. And this kind of gets to an idea that I present at the end of the book, um, these beings, I suspect, are not really aliens like traditionally thought in the ancient alien theory, that they evolved and developed on, on another planet and another solar system and eventually came here to Earth. Um, I'm leaning more and more to the idea that these beings were originally from Earth, that they're an older species that evolved here, developed, and then left for millions of years, and then came back. And that's because there seems to be a real strange emotional attachment, and then there are all these traditional stories of the angels, the fallen angels, taking human wives and being able to produce offspring. And the only way, in my mind, that you can do that is you have to be closely genetically related, because most of these ancient stories don't give any indication that technology is being used or involved or that these beings come down and they live with humans. And that's always been a real fascinating point to me. Oh, well, it, it, I mean, it takes a really interesting uh, twist because uh, I note in, your, in, a, in one of your uh, recent blogs, you, um, you actually tie in the, uh, you know, the Bigfoot uh, riddle uh, into the book of Enoch. And uh, that, that, I would imagine, does that tie into uh, the, the Watchers and perhaps a, a product or a part of their offspring? How does, that, how, do, how does Bigfoot, of all things, work its way <laughs> into the Bigfoot Book of Enoch? comes much, much later in the story. And the key for the way I take this, or the approach I take, is I start with the dream vision, which is a little farther into the Book of Enoch. In fact, it's really close to the end, <clears throat> which is a 
story that's essentially overlooked by everybody. And it is a symbolic or allegorical retelling of the biblical story. And it uses animals in place of people and groups and uses men to represent angels. And this story is actually, the mo- I think, the most important part of Enoch, because this symbolic story, this dream vision, unlocks the rest of the story and the symbolism. And the big secret to it is, is that there's three main characters in it, the bulls, the sheep, and the lambs. And I hypothesize that the bulls are Neanderthal, that the sheep are Cro-Mangling man, and the lambs are us. And then you use that knowledge to construct a generic timeline based on what we know about human evolution for approximately the last 200,000 years. And then you stretch the dream vision out over that timeline. And the amazing part is, is it seems to fit. All right. Well, let's 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 uh, spend some time uh, and, and get into that uh, that dream vision. Then the dream vision of Enoch. This is when uh, he ascends in into heaven. Essentially, correct? Essentially, um, it is traditionally like so traditionally viewed as just an allegorical retelling of the biblical story, and all the scholars and experts and lay alike, <clears throat> excuse me, agree on that point. And it does, it starts with Enoch seeing two, a bull coming forth from the earth and then seeing a heifer, and then he sees a red bull and then a black bull, and then the black bull gores the red bull. And all the scholars agree that this is the Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve story. Um, that little tidbit of symbolism of, it, of the bull is kind of a, kind of a little keyhole into the rest of the story, because the symbolism of the bull related to the first men is what's important in this story. And from that, you extrapolate out that the bull symbol represents the first men, and the first men end up later in the story being the ones that are corrupted by the watchers. And the neat part about this is you can take that little tidbit out of the vision of the bull representing the first men and apply it to other cultures, like Greek culture when they speak of Zeus coming to earth and turning himself into a bull to seduce some lady. We typically think of an actual bull in our head, but the dream vision and understanding the symbolism, this esoteric understanding of the symbolism, will tell you that no, he came down and turned himself into one of the first men. Ah, interesting. In fact, I believe the the symbol of the European Union uh, is of a bull, which I suppose then would uh, uh, would refer to Zeus and uh, a, a woman riding on the back. This would be the woman that Zeus seduced and carried away. Correct, and that this symbolism that we see every day, just like that, is esoteric symbolism, and it all relates back to these different mythologies, and that symbolism is unlocked through the dream vision. Uh, the, the dream vision, uh, um, keeping with the, uh, the theme of the bulls, there's a, um, a passage in there about a black bull goring a red bull and pursuing him over the earth. And thereupon, uh, Enoch says, I believe he's talking to his son Methuselah, 
uh, and there, uh, thereupon I could no longer see that red bull. So the black bull gores the red bull, pursues him over the earth, and then the red bull disappears. What's that all about? That would be the, what we would explain in the Bible, or, or we know in the Bible, as Cain slaying Abel. Ah, interesting. What's unique in the dream vision is the colors. Uh, traditionally, these are viewed as um, in more of a symbolic meaning of white is purity, red uh, is martyrdom, black means sin. <clears throat> but I speculate that in the rest of the story that these might be racial characteristics, that these might be ways these, these beings, if we were genetically modified or created, that we were originally broken along genetic lines, that, we, that from the very beginning, and that it possibly was some type of classification, or that's how they just broke us up into different groups. Um, I don't spend a lot of time on that, because there's so many different speculations, but that there appears to be some type of racial component. And within the traditions, too, over the centuries, people have kind of noticed that in Christianity there seems to be this racism that pops up periodically uh, related to skin color and sin, and it seems to have its origin somewhere in the book of Enoch and this esoteric idea from First Men. The Forbidden Knowledge of Enoch, uh, R.J. Von Bruning, my guest, here on The Conspiracy Show. Uh, now, you mentioned this genetic modification, uh, and this was, I mean, uh, can you flesh that out a little bit for us? Uh, who was responsible? Was it the Watchers? And, and what was the purpose of this genetic modification, according to uh, your, your research? In my research, I basically just follow the traditional Judeo-Christian belief system that we were, and I, I break the, I, I try to pull it out of the religious aspect that, because eventually this group, the original group, breaks into two warring factions that we typically know as God and the angels and Lucifer and his fallen angels. And I basically call them the main group and the fallen group, keep them clear. It appears that both groups have interfered with us genetically. Uh, originally working together in the creation of us, then at the time of the fall, there appears to have been some type of genetic modification. And then after the flood, after the destruction, the book Enoch again leads toward, or I should say the dream vision, gives the idea that there was even more genetic modification done afterwards. So that there was kind of a successive period of, of just modifications over time. All right, and the sheep and the lambs, uh, explain who they are. I speculate that, or I hypothesize that the sheep are our immediate ancestor, Cro-Manglin Man, which shows up in the fossil record at about 40,000 B.C. And then for us, the lambs would be us, modern man, that we show up genetically, distinctly, about 10,000 years ago. And now, like I said before, helps give a generic, a genetic, a generic timeline to help start putting the story in. And then kind of getting back to where you asked about Bigfoot, is when, in the story of the dream vision, where the bulls are turned into the sheep, 
this is also the same story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Bible. And the key to understanding that is that it talks that Jacob has a brother that everybody seems to forget about. Esau. In the dream vision, he's called a black wild boar. In the Bible, if you take the time to read that part of Genesis, you'll discover that he is described as a hairy man, and that he's just like his father, who's hairy all over, and that he's larger and he's stronger and he's bigger, and he's a man of the field, where Jacob is a smooth man and a man of the tents. And I speculate, and I think that's telling us that the one we call Bigfoot could be the same one that is described in the Bible as the hairy man, the brother of Jacob. And how do, why do you arrive at that? That seems on the surface to be an incredible leap. It does. And that's been the big difficulty in kind of describing what the dream vision unlocks. So you have to go, have to start at the beginning and move through the symbolism, because if you jump into the middle of the story like we just did with going, how does this tie together? How do you make a leap like that? Because uh, you're missing all these other pieces. It, it's been broken up into little tiny pieces, and if anyone, and if you don't have them all in a line, it just kind of sounds crazy. Granted. Well, that's unfortunately, those are, that's one of the, uh, the perils of uh, you know, trying to compress 25 years of research into one hour. But uh, we'll, we'll do what, what we can. <laughs> we'll come back with R.J. Von Bruning, The Forbidden Knowledge of Enoch, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Welcome back, The Forbidden Knowledge of Enoch. Uh, continuing on with this uh, discussion about uh, the, the, the Cro-Magnon and the, 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 the uh, Neanderthals, uh, my wife uh, is an archaeologist by training. She's always correcting me when I say Neanderthal. She says, no, it's Neanderthal. Uh, but uh, you, you point out something very interesting in the book, uh, RJ, uh, and that is if we are to understand that uh, Cro-Magnon man and Neanderthals uh, were um, the, the byproduct of uh, sort of a, an, an engin- a genetic engineering on the part of the, uh, the watchers uh, – they were created as a slave race, and of course we've heard this this part before by the you know in terms of the Anunnaki and 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 so far and so forth. Um, but you 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 found something, or you say there's something very interesting in the fossil record, which would tend to support the idea that Cro-Magnon men and Neanderthals were were just that slaves. Yeah, um, with Neanderthal is the pattern of injuries that have been found. Because one of the ideas that the dream vision and the esoteric belief system that comes from all this puts forward is that most of the Neanderthals that we find today found in caves and stuff, especially older finds, and they seem to be pretty beat up. Uh, They seem to have nutritional problems and stuff. The idea is, is that these being these Neanderthals may have been escaped slaves from this society, and that they were hiding, and that's kind of why they were having trouble living off the land, and why we see the injuries that we do. And what types of injuries are, uh, injuries are we talking about? Are these would be injuries that were sustained while they were slaves. Most likely, uh, there's within the archaeological record numerous finds of Neanderthals with broken bones that had healed, 
uh, where they had lost limbs. And traditionally, this has been interpreted that, you know, they were taken care of by the other members and that the society was a little bit more developed than we traditionally think. Um, the esoteric idea in the book of Enoch kind of gives the idea that they were slaves, and these guys may have been escaped slaves is what we're finding today. And that eventually they were transformed into basically a newer, smarter, more efficient slave, which would be our immediate ancestor. And the wild part is, is that we have found finds, uh, in fact, a number of caves in the Middle East, with one being in Israel, where Cro-Manglin and Neanderthal remains have been found together, and they've always been a big, huge mystery on why they were found together. Uh, were they living together? Were they interacting together? Were they interbreeding together? The esoterics give the idea that, no, these could all possibly be family members of, just like described in the Bible, that if Abraham and Isaac are Neanderthal and Jacob is the first Cro-Manglin man and his brother Ishu is what we call Bigfoot today, could possibly explain why those remains are together. Because they were told in the Bible that they're all buried in the same cave. Fascinating. And, and um, what, how, are, how are we to understand, then, uh, the Great Flood uh, through the prism of the Book of Enoch? In, this is one of the first things that caught my eye when I read the Dream Vision. In the Dream Vision, it's not really ex- explained at, or described as a worldwide flood. He actually describes an enclosure that is flooded, and that he sees seven great torrents of water come down from heaven, and that the earth opens up and the waters flood out, and it floods an enclosure. And that's vastly different than the biblical tradition that it was a worldwide flood. And I have to often suspect that's another reason why the early church moved this book out, because it counterdicts the traditional idea. Sure, sure. Uh, but, but, But what is the takeaway, then, from that interpretation of the flood, in your mind? In my mind is, is that this is would have to be a low-lining area, a basin. Um, I speculate due to the going so far back in time that it could possibly be the Mediterranean basin and at a much lower water level. And that could be the reason why we haven't really ever found anything, because it's all underwater today. And, and, uh, and then what of, of Noah and the story of the Ark? Well, the Dream Vision does speak of an ark being built, just like the tradition, and that it comes to rest on a mountain. If by chance it was actually the Mediterranean basin that was the enclosure that was flooded, then everybody's wrong about thinking it's Mount Ararat in Turkey, that it's probably more likely would have been on what we would call islands today in the Mediterranean. Fascinating. All right, uh, we are coming up on a uh, another break here. Uh, this is a short uh, a short segment. When we come back, uh, we'll continue to delve into the forbidden knowledge of Enoch, 
R.J. Von Bruning, my guest, 25 years uh, in the making. I mean, uh, as we just head into a break, just give me a sense of, you know, what led you from a career in, I guess, was it electrical engineering or the electrical uh, industry into pursuing this? I mean, just, well, we'll do that when we come back. I hear the music percolating up, but uh, fascinating, fascinating uh, story here. Back with more on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. R.J. Von Bruning uh, is with us, giving a, us a guided tour of the uh, the Lost Book of Enoch. It's called The Forbidden Knowledge of uh, Enoch. Uh, as you mentioned in, in the book, uh, this is a, a book that has great interest with certain esoteric societies, the Freemasons among them. Are you a Freemason? No, I am personally not, uh, but I do come from a very Masonic family. In fact, as far back as I can go in the genealogy, all of my family, except for a few members of the recent generation have always been Masonic. Is it and, and, and um, is it this uh, this lineage uh, that you come from? Is this why you? Is this what piqued your interest in this book? The the, the fact that the Freemasons were so uh, fascinated by the Book of Enoch is this what led you you on your journey? Pretty much. Um, my f- kind of have to back up here. Um, my like I said, my family very Masonic. Around the time I was born, there was, like most families, a big, huge falling out. And my immediate family and my folks moved to another state away from the rest of the family. I had never got any details on why. And I was always told that I came from a Masonic family, and it was always there in the background, especially when grandparents and uncles and stuff would come and visit or I would go and visit them, but I would never ever been, I I wouldn't be told anything specific. You know, when I'd ask about it, hey, what's the masonry? And they'd just kind of not want to talk about it. So on the one hand, I was told about it that I came from it, but on the other hand, I was never given any details. And the truth is that just made it irresistible. Sure, absolutely. And wanted to know why. What was the big, huge secret? And when I got into the electrical industry and stuff, uh, I spent a lot of my early career working on government projects and on military bases and stuff. And I was basically told that I didn't want to join anything like the Masons or any groups that were controversial in any way, or I wouldn't be allowed to work on those types of projects. Isn't that interesting? Because that used to be your ticket into those kinds of projects, I'm imagining. Yeah. At one time in our history. Today, it's not that way. At least not for the guys working with the tools. No. Okay. <laughs> interesting. Yes. How ironic. Um, so, uh, so in, in essence, your this was uh, a journey you wanted to find out who you were and where you came from, and then you... You stumbled onto the Book of Enoch. Yes. Um, over the years, as family members have passed away and stuff, I've slowly received Masonic books and Bibles and encyclopedias and all kinds of paraphernalia, and I was, and that even sparked my interest even more because of how vaguely it was written, and all of it always seemed to be pointing back. To the book of Enoch. And why and, is that? What is the connection uh, between Freemasonry 
and uh, and the Book of Enoch. Why the fascination, or why the the, the obsession? Because in, in in my opinion, I would argue that the reason the Book of Enoch is so important is because the symbolic dream vision is actually the basic story that provides the doctrine for the re esoteric religion, and that is what Masonry is. Masonry is actually an esoteric religion or a mystery school. Uh, they're one of the few survivors that Christianity didn't manage to stomp out 1,500 years ago. That's when people kind of wonder, what is Masonry? Masonry and its sister organizations and other groups like them... Like the Rosicrucians? Yes, are... Basically, the few surviving mystery religions we always hear about that Christianity stomped out 15, 16 centuries ago. And what is the threat? What is the threat? why they went underground. And what, what's at the root uh, of the, the conflict between uh, Freemasonry, uh, the Rosicrucians, and, and Christianity as it pertains to Enoch? What is it that's so um, threatening? Uh, in the Book of Enoch to the Christian uh, or the biblical narrative as we know it? I would argue because it changes the timeline, and that's the biggest thing. They have a different timeline, and they don't really look at the Bible as a religious book. They view it more as a historical book. And they believe, and they have actually good reason to believe that Everything that's described in the Bible has already happened, including the Armageddon that everybody likes to talk about, the end of days. And they believe it happened about 13,000 years ago, which is just an unbelievable curveball thrown to most people. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, because, you know, we are told, uh, and I believe, (laughs) that Christ lived... Uh, 2,000 years ago, uh, and and he talked about, you know, in the days of Noah, he talked about the end times. So how does the historical figure, Jesus Christ, fit into the timeline? Um, He actually fits, they move him back. They move him back to about 13,000 years ago, to about 11,000 B.C. is when they think the Great Destruction happened which coincides with that we know that something catastrophic happened on this planet about 11,000 years ago. And to the esoterics, they believe that this catastrophic event is actually what is recorded in the Book of Revelations. And that's where it gets wild and goes directly against everything we've been taught all our lives, is that Everything that we've been told happened 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, actually happened closer to 10 or 12 or 13,000 years ago. But there's actually a big, huge gap in our history. And that is one of the main conflicts between the two groups. Well, uh, the esoterics are saying, no, Jesus actually lived about... 13,000 years ago, not 2,000 years ago. What we call ancient Rome didn't fall 1,500 years ago. It actually fell sometime around 10,000 B.C. And just coming out and saying that just sounds rather bizarre. 
if you don't have the rest of the backstory, the rest of the belief, and the secret to unlocking that the dream vision in the book Enoch. Now, uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, and we don't have a lot of time. We've got about six minutes, but uh, um, getting back to the historical Jesus, I mean, we have, I mean, it's often been said, and I think correctly, I mean, we know people say, well, there, there, there may not have been an historical Jesus. There is more written about, we know more about uh, Jesus, there's been more written about him outside of the Bible than has been written about people that we as- we just generally assume did exist, like Plato, for example. I mean, we have the writings of Josephus and 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 many others outside the Bible writing about an historical Jesus. So how do, how was that achieved? That the timeline was so, you know flipped around uh, in in such a way. That is really hopefully going to be part of another book <laughs> to answer that question. But the truth is, the esoterics basically believe that we kind of basically fell into a dark age, and that what we read in our history books starting around fifteen to 1,600 years ago when we have um, the beginnings of the Middle Ages, just right before Charlemagne, just these small little kingdoms, little villages, people just basically living and constantly living on the edge, is how we actually existed for thousands of years after the destruction. And then the church and Charlemagne and all that is actually where our history starts picking up and becoming what we know today as history, and that they just basically filled in the gaps as they went. They found these stories and went, it happened 500 years ago or it happened 200 years ago. And if you kind of put it in this perspective of 1,500 years ago, you're trying to consolidate power, you're trying to pull people together. Politicians and church people lie. And that they just basically filled it in, and there was no way anybody could disagree with them. So the the, the takeaway here, then, is uh, that what we are learning from the Book of Enoch is that, that mankind, modern man, is far older uh, than we've been led to believe, that we are descendants of a, um, a um, slaves, race of slaves that were genetically engineered by uh, these watchers. And whether you believe that they're angels or aliens, uh, this is where we periodically received kind of a, an evolutionary um, uh, reboot. Is that the idea? Basically. Uh, the last one that leads to the creation of us seems to have been done to help us survive the destruction that happened around 10,000 B.C. And um, the, um, the idea of this, the, the fall, I mean, I know we're jumping back and forth here a little bit, but uh, just in a, in a minute or two, can you explain how the fall of man uh, um, fits into this narrative uh, laid out by the, the, in the book of, of Enoch. What is the fall, then? The fall is essentially of Lucifer coming to Earth and eventually his angels following him. And this is the exact same story in other traditions. This is also Zeus and the Olympians coming. This is Ra for the Egyptians. This is uh, the Anunnaki that Stitchum talks about. That this one singular event is important and actually becomes the point where we can start talking about history and because we have two different parties 
they, they break into two parties, and this basically starts a war that a theologian would argue is still going on to this very day between good and evil. And, uh, and Lucifer, I mean, he's been long charged that, that, uh, that the Masons are Luciferian, that they worship uh, Lucifer, the fallen angel. Who is then Lucifer, uh, according to, you, to your understanding, or the Masonic understanding? Um, first thing is, is I don't, I would not say that the Masons are worship Lucifer. They acknowledge him, but they acknowledge him more as an equal to God. So they're kind of two sides of the same coin, which kind of goes against most traditional thinking, more of a Gnostic kind of thought thinking. Um, but Lucifer is traditionally always thought of, and I presented in my book, too, that he is the bringer of knowledge. He's the one that breaks the slavery. He's the one that changes everything. And that's where the confusion lies, because within the esoteric, as you learn the story and go through the dream vision, you get the impression that the good guy isn't always the good guy, and the bad guy is not always the bad guy. That we have kind of a distorted view of what was going on all those centuries ago. Well, it's very provocative, fascinating, and uh, we'll have to have you back on because, as I say, it's very difficult to compress 25 years of research, uh, and that's what it took uh, to put this book together uh, into about 45 minutes. It's really a ridiculous task, but that's what we have. Uh, I really appreciate uh, spending some time with you, RJ. Would you be uh, good to come back with us at another point? Oh, yeah, any time. And uh, very quickly, uh, how, how can people learn more about the book or uh, order the book? Give us a website. Um, the easiest way to learn about it is just to go to my blog, theforbiddenknowledgeofenoch.blogspot.com. Uh, there are also links at the bottom there for ordering. Um, it is available at Amazon.com, Barnes & Noble, and most all online book retailers and bookstores, and can be ordered directly from the publisher at takepublishing.com. Excellent. Well, once again, I appreciate uh, you spending some time with us. Thanks, R.J. Thank you, and had a great time. Likewise. R.J. Von Bruning, The Forbidden Knowledge of Enoch. Well, I'm going to have to go back and reread that. Fascinating. All right. Uh, the website, richardserrett.com. As I mentioned uh, earlier in the hour, some point over the summer, it will be revamped, re uh, relaunched, under a new banner, it'll be Strange Planet. StrangePlanet.tv, StrangePlanet.ca. Uh, however, the content will remain more or less the same. Everything that you uh, need to know about the conspiracy show as it exists on RichardSerrett.com will still be there. And as always, you can uh, say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett. And you know what I say, how I end every hour. Follow the truth. And thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, your RV, your earbuds, however and wherever you're listening, welcome, and uh, thanks for hanging out. It's very comforting to know you're out there listening. A, uh, a quick shout-out to a very young, devoted fan uh, who lives in the uh, Denver, Colorado area. Uh, I've been in communication with uh, Andrew McAllister, and um, he and his um, uh, wife have a young son named Calum, 
who is a, a big fan of the program, and Calum, uh, you've probably heard me speak of him a number of times in the program, is celebrating a birthday today, and he is in Florida as part of a, a Make-A-Wish, uh, the Make-A-Wish Foundation trip uh, out to Florida. So Calum, uh, and I understand he's listening, he's up late. What a trooper. Uh, Calum, of course, battling cancer, and uh, I think, uh, by all accounts, kicking its butt. Uh, so Calum, if you're listening... Happy birthday, little fellow, and God bless you, and uh, have a great time. Uh, have a great time in uh, Florida. Just soak it all in and enjoy every moment. You deserve it, and uh, so too uh, does your, um, your mom and dad. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's official. It is uh, now just after midnight, and that means three provisions of the uh, U.S. Patriot Act have now expired. That's right. There was a sunset clause written into the Patriot Act, and the biggest and most controversial of the provisions to expire just a moment ago uh, is the government's sweeping powers under Section 215 that allow the NSA to collect telephone metadata on millions of Americans and probably some Canadians as well uh, and store that data for five years. Well, now that's gone. It has been, it has expired, at, at least temporarily. For how long? I can't say. Uh, but is there anyone who believes that simply because the provision had a sunset clause built in and it is now sunset, that the NSA is going to suddenly stop collecting telephone metadata on millions of Americans? Well, if you believe that, then I've got some soggy bottomland in southwest Florida for sale. Uh, who knows? Perhaps uh, we'll, um, we'll get Joel Skousen back on the program at some point to discuss. Actually, Joel Skousen will be back uh, on the program. It's been a while. Joel will be with us in a couple of weeks uh, to talk about Jade Helm 15. Uh, I've been receiving just dozens and dozens of emails every week uh, and tweets, people asking, when are we going to talk about Jade Helm 15? Well, we will in a couple of weeks when uh, Joel Skousen, the editor and publisher of World Affairs Brief, will drop by. All right. Uh, I want to uh, jump right in uh, to tonight's discussion because we have so little time. I, I mentioned this many times. I really need a four-hour show at least five nights a week, maybe seven to get it all said. In fact, uh, what often happens is that I bring certain guests back on uh, for part two and sometimes part three um, just to continue on and get all the information out there. A couple of months ago, Dr. Richard Sauter joined us via Skype from his uh, home in Central America uh, to discuss secret underground and undersea bases. Now, much of the interview, if you recall, was plagued with technical difficulties, interruptions. We kept losing the connection, although many of you no doubt suspected something more nefarious was afoot. Uh, as it turns out, this sort of thing tends to happen whenever Dr. Sauter uh, is invited onto radio programs for interviews. So as promised, we're bringing Dr. Sauter back on. Fingers crossed we can maintain contact. Although, as I just mentioned, apparently now we have a window. As of midnight tonight, we're, su we're supposedly free to talk without NSA tracking, as if. Uh, Dr. Richard Sauter is a native Virginian with an abiding interest in Fortiana, unusual information and anomalous paradigm-busting data of all varieties. Uh, beginning in early childhood, he, was he has experienced first-hand contact with a variety of paranormal phenomena, 
that have left him a bit puzzled, flummoxed, and thoroughly persuaded that there's much more to the earth and a human perception and consciousness than the mainstream American culture believes. Some of Richard's favorite research and reading interests are underground and underwater bases and tunnels, electronic mind control, freedom technology, UFOs, human prehistory, and remote antiquity, international politics, the kundalini energy and alternative thought patterns. We're going to talk about underground bases, undersea bases, how far far down do they go, what leaks are coming from the classified world, what is the U.S. Navy plan for beneath the ocean floor, Are there bases beneath the ocean? What's going on beneath Washington, D.C., for example? Are there high-speed underground maglev systems? What is the connection with UFOs and the alien question? Richard Sauter's Hidden in Plain Sight is a book that truly goes where no other book has gone before. And hopefully we have uh, connected with Dr. Richard Sauter. Richard, are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you for having me on. Terrific, and uh, we'll hope uh, that the connection lasts. Now, uh, just uh, remind me, are you in Ecuador? I am. I'm in Ecuador. Ecuador is um, on the northwestern coast of South America. I've been here almost five years. And um, interestingly, I heard your intro about the NSA. I don't believe a word of what the NSA and the federal government are saying about them ceasing their uh, collection activities or surveillance activities of electronic communication at at midnight um, tonight. Um, That's not going to happen. The NSA is and has been since its inception a rogue agency and massively so. So whatever they say, you may safely presume that they are going to do 180 degrees, the polar opposite. Yeah, I've uh, I've pretty well baked that into the equation. Likewise, I, I don't buy it that just because uh, it expired that, that that's going to stop them. Um, well, you know, I am I am seeking political refuge in Ecuador, and I've been engaged in this process almost uh, two years. One of the aspects. And so it begins. Uh, did we lose him, or did, is he just? Do we have a, a streaming issue, Tim? Oh, just seems to be an internet connection problem on his end. So, Doctor Sauter, if uh, you're there, please respond. Are you there, Doctor Sauter? It sounds like he may have dropped off. Okay, he's trying to reconnect. Let me just remind uh, those of you just joining us, uh, Dr. Richard Asader is with us. His new book is Hidden in Plain Sight, a book that truly goes where no book has gone before in discussing uh, underground bases. And you can hear the uh, the pinging in the background. That is Dr. Sauter trying to reconnect uh, all the way from Ecuador. Uh, why don't we throw open the phone lines while we're waiting for Dr. Sauter uh, And if you have questions or comments for him regarding underground bases, their location, uh, and what might be going on uh, beneath the waves in some instances. Some of these bases supposedly are actually located beneath the ocean floor, if you can believe it. Is this where trillions of dollars of uh, black op budget money has gone? into building these underground bases, and for what purpose? We'll get to that with uh, Dr. Richard Sauter. Let me give you the phone numbers right now, and you can start to line up. Uh, 416 
This is in the greater Toronto area, 416-360-0740. And toll-free from just about anywhere, 1-800, sorry, it's 866-740-4740. Let me give you that one to you uh, one more time. This is toll-free from just about anywhere, 1-866-740-4740. Four, seven forty. Now, on the off chance that we are not able to reconnect with Dr. Richard Sauter, uh, and we'll keep trying, no doubt, uh, let me ask you about this provision, 215, Section 215 of the uh, Patriot Act, which has just expired moments ago, a sunset clause. Whether you're living... On either side of the, uh, the 49th parallel, if you're American or you're Canadian, what are your thoughts? Do you, in fact, believe that the NSA will cease and assist in collecting telephone metadata? And I believe, uh, for the record, that that does not just include Americans only. I'm quite confident uh, that there is some sort of an arrangement which allows the NSA to also collect the um, telephone metadata of Canadians. But as I mentioned, at the top of the hour, one minute past midnight, and Section 215, along with uh, two other provisions, uh, but this is the uh, perhaps the most controversial and sweeping power under the U.S. Patriot Act, uh, Section 215 allows the National Security Agency to collect telephone metadata and store it for five years. That is now gone at least temporarily. For how long? Hard to say. Some of you may be thinking, as I am thinking, that that's not even going to happen. They will continue to collect metadata, with or without an active Section 215. 416-360-0740, if you'd like to talk about that. 416-360-0740, that's in the greater Toronto area, and toll-free... 1-866-740-4740. We can talk about the, uh, the NSA and the Patriot Act. Uh, or if you'd like to, uh, to get on the phone and line up in anticipation of us rejoining Dr. Richard Sauter to talk, uh, Richard Sauter to talk about underground bases, uh, we can do that as well. Let's begin with Richard in Baltimore. Richard, good morning. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? Good morning, Richard. Uh, I'm... Uh uh member on your your uh facebook uh page there oh the website yeah richard and, um, com. great i have a quick one quick question for you a, a few minutes ago you were talking about the underground bases and the uh black budget uh funding and i just wanted to ask you if you think uh a lot of the uh secret technology uh, which some people would uh, really contribute attribute to the government, the U.S. government. Um, but I think a lot of that is in the hands of the global elite. And do you think that what's happening with the black budget money is it's actually the American taxpayers who are paying for all of this, 
but the global elite are reaping the rewards, and they're not spending a dime of their own money. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't disagree with you. I, I, when, we, when we talk about uh, the, uh, the elites or the unelected oligarchs, uh, we are talking about a group of individuals who have no allegiance to, to the nation-state. In fact, they are actively engaged in trying to destroy uh, the nation-state because there's nothing uh, that inhibits the free flow of capital uh, than the nation-state, uh, borders and, and, and uh, separate jurisdictions with their own regulations and so forth. Now, we do have Dr. Richard Sauter uh, back. Uh, are you there, uh, Richard? Yes. You know, unfortunately, no sooner did I begin to talk about the NSA than our connection was cut. And um, <laughs> Interesting. Uh, I want to say about the NSA yes. that they do have some very large and elaborate underground facilities. One of them is under their headquarters in Laurel, Maryland, between Washington, D.C. and Baltimore on the on the east coast of North America. And... This is an elaborate facility that goes down, I've been told, 20 levels or more and spreads out acres on each level, each level full of science fiction-like banks of supercomputers. Uh, and is this, where uh, they collect, do you, is this where the collection of this telephone metadata is taking place? In well, this? that's one of the places, one of the places. You have to understand they also have another facility on the border between Virginia and West Virginia. And uh, it's a, an NSA uh, downlink facility from satellites. Um, it's uh, Green Cove Springs, I think is the name of it. And it is um, a, an underground facility where they also have uh, – it's jointly run with the United States Navy. All right, uh, Richard, I, ha I have to jump in. Thanks for reconnecting yes. with us. We're going to head into a break. We'll come back. Stay where you are. We pray, and uh, we'll continue to talk about uh, underground bases, and uh, maybe we can touch on Richard from Baltimore's question about how these things are funded. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show in a moment. Stay with us. And joining us live via Skype from his home in Ecuador is uh, Dr. Richard Sauter, who is the world's premier investigator of underground bases and tunnels. And uh, uh, we had a caller from uh, Richard in Baltimore, I think, uh, who's still on the line, uh, Richard, and he's asking about how these things are being paid for. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm guessing, you know, trillions of dollars it would be poured into these bases, siphoned off. Uh, uh, taxpayer, you know, uh, from the U.S. Treasury uh, and being paid for substantially or, or uh, ostensibly rather by, by taxpayers. Well, you know, uh, they get money. They suck money from anywhere they can. Uh, they're equal opportunity thieves and criminals. We're talking about criminality on a massively mind-bending scale. The average person cannot even wrap their head around it. If I've done uh, in past years uh, research, uh, budget research, and you can see that there are in publicly available documents, billions up to a few tens of billions of dollars per year being siphoned on off for classified programs. So that's one area in which they get their money. Um, but a lot of it is quite simply stolen. You know, they make money the old-fashioned way. They just go out and steal it by, by the train load full. And through Wall Street, through drug sales, through trafficking of and sale, sale, the sale of anything, 
that can be trafficked and sold, whether it's diamonds or gold or or petroleum or weapons, uh, harvesting human organs, human trafficking. They get money any way they can by means fair or foul, and usually by by foul means, by criminal means, by uncommonly criminal means. No one knows exactly the amount of money involved in the underground base construction and maintenance and also the uh, undersea facilities. Uh, it's impossible to tell because there is no public uh, open paper trail. I think we can safely presume it runs not just into the tens of billions of dollars or hundreds of billions of dollars, but as you have observed, uh, quite certainly into the trillions of dollars. And I would add, I don't know if you've ever interviewed Dr. Joseph Farrell. Oh, many times. He's a good friend. Good friend. Well, okay. Uh, Joseph has done some very interesting research uh, in recent years. He's always uh, writing something new, if not two or three somethings new. That's true. I've never met a more prolific author in my life. Well, you know, wind him up and watch him go. The the thing is that he and other researchers, including including me, have um, noticed this now for years. One of the things that Donald Rumsfeld said in, just before the day of the infamous 9-11 attacks in, in 2001 was that by some estimates, the Pentagon cannot account for over $2 trillion in spending. And that's true, but it's not just two trillion. It's unknown trillions of dollars. It's so much worse than what he said. That was a limited hangout. The reality is that this thing called the United States government, and including the NSA, which WAGs often say means means no such agency, is a rogue entity. It is a vast uh, globe-spanning criminal mafia of unimaginable proportions. In fact, as Joseph Farrell's research suggests and those of others, and as my many conversations have suggested as well, uh, this criminality almost certainly extends off the planet to other nearby um, bodies such as the moon and the Mars and perhaps even further afield, further afield in the solar system and beyond. It's very difficult to tell. But I can tell you, in my own research, I've run across some some um, some articles and studies in the geological uh, and geological engineering and mining engineering uh, literature, for example, that speaks of mining on the moon as one example. Hmm. And even in my first book, I I have a brief um, uh, reference toward the end of my first book of one document that I obtained pertaining to subsalines, which are, are in the literature that I saw uh, in concept are nuclear-powered tunnel boring machines that would be taken to the moon and would be used there to make tunnels for whatever reasons that the uh, this secret uh, high-tech civilization that Joseph Farrell and some others talk about would have for right. doing that. a breakaway but civilization. I also, yes, I, I actually cite the dollar figure that they gave in that particular document for transporting one of these machines to the moon. And mind you, the subsaline, which is called a subterrain here on Earth, is a, is a huge machine. 
nuclear powered. It's hundreds of feet long, and the cutting head of this thing could be anywhere from 10, 15 to 20 or 30 feet in diameter. So they're very large, very heavy, multi-ton machines. You would not take something like that to the moon with conventional rockets. It would be extremely prohibitively expensive and difficult. I'm presuming, and I have for some time, that this uh, parallel uh, parallel um, human civilization, really, that exists cheek by jowl with our, our uh, publicly acknowledged technology and, and social structure, has other technology, I would guess, to going to the moon and maybe to Mars and maybe even farther into the solar system than that and maybe even to other solar systems. You know, a lot of people have seen these big, huge flying black triangles over the years. Right, right. Which cer- certainly are not conventional aerospace technology, whatever they are. I would guess they are a terrestrial technology since they are seen on and about the Earth in near-Earth airspace, including uh, most famously probably in Belgium about 10 or 15 years right. ago. Right, Steven- Stevensville, uh, Texas. No, in no? Belgium they were seen. No, but also in uh, – but were they not okay. also seen in, in Stevensville, Texas and, and well, uh, perhaps well, – Richard, the stuff, the stuff that was seen in Stevensville, Texas and also some other places was just vast. Right. People uh, – yeah, like a box store floating oh, just, suddenly, just huge. silently, oh, just, silently. Just huge stuff, uh, some of it at almost treetop level, just vast mammoth structures that are – you cannot explain by conventional – aerospace technology, I think that um, a lot of this stuff is terrestrial and that there is more than one terrestrial faction. From what I've seen, and you know I'm I'm a conventional writer, author, and researcher, and I do have conventional academic degrees from um, a number of large universities in the United States, but I also am a visionary in some respects in that beginning in Early childhood, I, I have had a wide variety of paranormal experiences. And, and we will talk about could, the bone lady at some point, I hope. Well, um, what, I, what I want to tell you now is about some of my deep dreams. Um, one of them in particular had to do with these big black triangles. And what was revealed to me in the deep dream state, which is a borderline lucid dream, actually, is that um, there's a consortium of major uh, North American aerospace companies that are involved in some wise with these uh, big black triangles. I don't know if they actually are the ones who have built them or if they got a hold of one or more of them and reverse engineered them or if they are cooperating with one or more groups from off the planet, which may or may not be human, I don't know. But the purport of the dream was that in some way these major companies like, oh, I don't know, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, uh, Fairchild, um, Martin, uh, Lockheed Martin, etc., Bell, are are involved in some kind of way with these black triangles. I couldn't tell you more than that because in the dream I was thinking, man, this is crazy, as the was being um, shown me, I was thinking, I was thinking extraterrestrial. And here, the purport of this dream is that it's a very shadowy, well-founded, well-funded, extremely um, high-tech 
very black budget kind of of consortium of North American aerospace well, companies. That would make in other sense. Words, that would make sense, uh, Richard. We, we, if we go back, harken back to uh, the uh, some of the last words uttered by Ben Rich, who was the director of Skunk Works at Lockheed Martin, and he said, "We now have the technology to send ET home." What does that mean? Interstellar travel. To me, that's what that well, means. Well, he spilled the beans. What, what, he, what he was saying is, well, you know, we have these really fast military jets. But the but the good stuff is way beyond that by orders of magnitude, like you know ten or twenty orders of magnitude, and so yes, I think we have comments by Ben Rich on more than one occasion uh, that clearly point to um, a a quantum leap having been made in aerospace. Well, the other interesting thing is um, um, regarding. The whole skunk works and that, and 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 to me, it's it's you know the the, the lunar landing uh, supposed hoax. To me, the hoax there is not that we land we didn't land on the moon in 1969. I, I certainly believe we did. Uh, to me, the the nature of the hoax is that we were probably there much much sooner uh, than 1969. Uh, we have lost Dr. Richard Sauter once again, but we will reestablish. Reestablish the uh, internet connection. I'm confident of that. When we come back, uh, when we get Dr. Sauter back on, I want to ask him. Um, I receive a lot of emails about um, the supposed discovery of an underwater entrance off the coast of Malibu uh, at Point Doom. And some are calling this the holy grail of uh, UFO researchers. They've been looking for it uh, for the last 40 years. And uh, again, supposedly, this is an underwater entrance to some. Uh, massive base. And uh, as we heard Dr. Sauter describe, um, we may not be talking about extraterrestrial craft. These may be made in the good old USA. But is there a base, an underwater base, off the coast of Malibu at uh, Point Doom? We'll find out. Well, we have him back, Dr. Sauter. Uh, I was just mentioning. Yeah, you know, your- it seems every time we get on a sensitive topic, someone pulls the plug with this. Well, we will persevere. Um, I, I wanted to – we're going into a break shortly, but I just wanted to start this conversation and, and pick it up on the other end. We were talking about uh, uh, advanced uh, craft and so forth, and I wanted to get your take on this um, underwater entrance supposedly located off the coast of Malibu, Point Doom. Uh, well, I think that's disinformation. Do you? Okay. But there's cer- yes, but there certainly are underwater facilities, um, terrestrial and ET. But it's not one. There's not one located at Point Doom. What? I highly doubt it. But in the California Channel Islands, I would give you a pretty good bet on that. Yes. But right off of Malibu, uh, I I think that's disinformation. And 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 uh, what is the nature of that disinformation, or what is the objective? Do you well, I looked at I looked at the. I don't know. Maybe just rank sensationalism and not very sophisticated analysis, for starters, but. Um, the technology does exist and has for half a century or more to make sophisticated, deep underwater facilities down in the bedrock beneath the seafloor and locations where I have been pointed to where some of these may be, or in the Gulf of Mexico, off the east coast of North America on the continental shelf, but down in the bedrock uh, and in the Caribbean, around Puerto Rico, but not only around Puerto Rico. Off the coast of California, but more in the Channel Islands region to the south of Malibu and off the coast of 
Argentina, it sees, it seems, and beneath uh, Lake Erie in the Great Lakes region. Oh, that's interesting uh, because that's off just of, a, off of Cleveland, a stone's throw from uh, from where we are in Lake Erie. Uh, well, a lot of people have a lot of people have seen UFOs coming and going from the waters of Lake Erie. It's been observed many times, and you know the geology is very conducive to underground. In this case, under under sea or under lake construction because you have a vast thick stratum of rock salt beneath Lake Erie and that's very easy to excavate and it's uh, it's a, it's as great lakes go it's the shallowest so uh that would perhaps weigh into the uh into the equation or the decision to build it there yes sir and also the north atlantic um you know the the late Graham Birdsaw who's editor of UFO magazine that was published out of Leeds, England, back in the 20th century and up into the early part of this century, was a good friend of mine. We spent a lot of ta- time talking and visited both in the United States and in England. Um, he told me more than once that there were a lot of, of, of good uh, eyewitness accounts of UFOs coming and going from the sea around Iceland. All right, we will uh, take another time out. We'll come back. Uh, the next segment is about five, six minutes. It's a short one, but we'll uh, dig deeper, no pun intended, as we discuss underground bases and tunnels with one of the world's preeminent authorities on the subject, coming to us live from Ecuador, Dr. Richard Sauter, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. All right, let me give out the uh, the phone numbers once again while we try to establish uh, contact with uh, Dr. Richard Sauter. It's kind of touch and go, but we get him back on, and then we lose him, and then we get him back on, and that's fine. We're still getting the information out there. Uh, Dr. Richard Sauter, of course, is uh, one of the world's preeminent researchers into uh, underground bases and tunnels. And uh, he was uh, referring to uh, the, the possibility of a uh, an undersea or underwater base being located somewhere in Lake Erie, which is uh, not too far from here, where I sit. Uh, let me just uh, crib here from uh, Dr. Richard uh, Sauter's uh, work. Uh, is there any more documentation from the U.S. Navy with regard to undersea bases? As it happens, there is. In 1972, the U.S. Navy published another report that discussed undersea ports. The report is entitled, Subsurface Deployment of Naval Facilities. The document cites live sorts of facilities uh, which the future Navy might situate underground. The reasons for going underground range from the tactical to the practical. Many Navy bases face a real estate squeeze from the surrounding civilian communities and sea. They are hemmed in on all sides. The, location, the logical solution is to build underground since the surface possibilities for expansion are constrained. So the Navy planners envisaged planning the following sorts of facilities below the service administrative buildings medical facilities aircraft maintenance facilities ammunition storage facilities miscellaneous storage facilities most interesting for the premise of this section of the book however is the following statement underground facilities may someday play a greater role in naval operations because of future de- uh, developments such as improving effectiveness of satellite surveillance systems which could certainly require the subservice deployment of any system this nation desired to keep a secret. The emergence, because of its continuing invulnerability, of the sea-based strategic missile system as our first line of de- deterrence against nuclear attack 
and the importance of protecting its supportive basing and communication system, which may dictate the need for underground or undersea emplacement of key supporting elements of this force. And then, his closing thoughts, I want to say something about the many submarine UFOs that have been seen over the years, going back for decades. UFO witnesses have seen unexplained objects leaving and entering the world's oceans, seas, bays, rivers, and lakes. In recent years, submarine UFO, UFO activity has been, uh, have, has been observed in the coastal waters off Puerto Rico and Iceland. Dr. Sauter just mentioned that moments ago. Iceland. And in late 1999, he says, I spoke with the host of a radio show in the Midwestern region of the United States who told me of recent sightings of a UFO seen entering and leaving the waters of Lake Erie. There you have it. In light of observations such as these, I hypothesize that at least some of the observed submarine UFO, UFO activity may be related to clandestine subsea bases made by terrestrial humans. All right. Dr. Sauter is back, I understand. Are you there, Dr. Sauter? Yes, I am, and I don't know why we keep getting the plug pulled on us. I um, that's okay. I, I was just I we'll, just cribbed from uh, we'll your persevere. Bo- yes, we will. Thank, I, I was just cribbing thank, from thank un- you. from underwater and underground bases, and uh, going back to what you mentioned moments ago about this base, uh, perhaps underwater base in in Lake Erie. Now, well, you know, uh, years ago, the uh, American biologist Ivan T. Sanderson wrote a book called Invisible Residents. Which really, um, in a lot of ways, uh, presaged my own work following in, by a um, delay of some, some decades. But he made a very compelling case because he just uh, went around the world citing many, many examples of sometimes vast UFOs that were seen leaving and or entering the sea uh, at times in front of um, naval, uh, military naval vessels. So this has been going on for a, a long time. Are you familiar with uh, Canada's uh, UFO, one of our more famous incidents, and that would be Shag Harbor back in the late 1960s? Uh, I've read of it, yes. This but we can talk about that if you like. Well, it certainly fits It fits the description of a perhaps of a, a, an underground base. This was a UFO that was seen uh, uh, entering or you know, presumably crashing into the water, although it would, perhaps it was just landing, and uh, there was a naval search. This is uh, you know, uh, well-documented government sources, uh, RCMP investigation, and so forth. Uh, and this craft um, just disappeared. And uh, it certainly sounds like it sort of fits the, uh, the model of what you're describing, uh, a terrestrial a vehicle of terrestrial origin entering into an undersea base. Yes. Well, you know, um, the United States Navy is heavily, shall we say, heavily invested in and involved in a variety of woo-woo technologies. That would have to do with uh, submarine technologies that exceed what we have been told publicly. Of course, underground bases. And and my research uh, covers uh, the uh, R&D work, research and design work, that came out of the China Lake Naval Weapons Station in the high desert of California back in the mid-1960s, and also followed by uh, very similar R&D work done at, at the Stanford Research Institute, also in, in California near uh, Stanford University in the Bay Area, uh, both of which uh, produced documents that 
mentioned making very large manned uh, facilities deep down in the bedrock beneath ocean floor capable of carrying out military missions or scientific missions or command and control types of missions, uh, industrial, also including industrial missions such as mining, and that could be made even um, for as little as a few billion dollars. And here we're talking about a black budget that costs, uh, that runs into the trillions of dollars. And mind you, in the, in the r- literature that I've researched, um, the the authors and the researchers were talking about making hundreds of miles long tunnel systems down in the bedrock beneath the ocean floor well out to sea and in, in mid-sea and mid-ocean. So when we start to think about this, we have to envision a time frame of half a century at least, technology that can make tunnel systems hundreds of miles long and that when you have a half a century in which to work, you see using even the tunnel boring machine technology that was available 30, 40, 45 years ago, you could have by this time made easily thousands of miles of clandestine tunnels beneath the world's oceans. All of these, uh, we're going into a break, but very quickly, all of these bases uh, joined by, uh, even the undersea ones, uh, joined by uh, maglev trains? Well, they can be, and you know, again, I'm not on the inside of these projects, which is why I'm talking to you. The people who are on the inside of the projects don't talk you, to you. So I'm about the best you have in that respect. All right. We'll what take I a, can tell you is just hold on to that massively uh, researched. Okay, just hold on to that, Richard. We'll uh, come back on the other side. Dr. Richard Sauter stays with us on The Conspiracy Show. Uh, we're back with Dr. Richard Sauter joining us live via Skype from uh, Ecuador, and uh, thank you for your patience. We've um, reconnected with uh, Dr. Sauter. I wanted to talk about these um, uh, maglev uh, trains that supposedly uh, connect these uh, underground military bases. Uh, now, I have heard, I mean, the rumor is out there, and you can tell me what you found, that these trains uh, have speeds up to Mach 2. Does that sound plausible? Conceivable? Listen, Richard, yes. You have to understand that the R&D work, research and design work for this, these uh, vacuum tube, uh, deep underground, high-speed maglev trains goes right back into the early 30s in Nazi Germany. Uh, a, an engineer by the name of Hermann Kemper uh, came up with the concept of die Rohrbahn, which were underground tube transport maglev trains in his conception, they would have gone up to about 600, 900 miles per hour, and that was using uh, early 1930s era technology. I don't know if the Nazis ever developed those high-speed underground trains or not. If they did, uh, the Americans under Project Paperclip kept it all very silent. What we can say is that right down to the present day, The Germans and the Japanese, the two major Axis powers during World War II, um, both of which were very heavily invested and involved in underground construction during the war, to this day remain uh, perhaps the two preeminent um, uh, developers of maglev, high-speed maglev train technology. Now, having said that, remember you did have Project Paperclip, and Project Paperclip brought a large number, an unknown number, of Nazi scientists, engineers, and technicians 
to the United States after World War II. Among them were um, an engineer by the name of Xavier Dorsch and three of his cohorts who were uh, – Xavier Dorsch was Adolf Hitler's uh, hand-picked underground, con- underground base construction lead engineer in the last two or three years of the war. And he was brought to the – or he was uh, in American military custody after World War II. Uh, he actually was debriefed and wrote some documents that I've read pertaining to his work uh, with respect to construction, civil construction uh, during the war. And I presume he was brought to the United States because I have a couple of Project Paperclip doc- documents that I cite explicitly in my book, Hidden in Plain Sight, Beyond the X-Files. And he was requested by name to come to the United States to work on the United States military's underground plant program. And we know that indeed that underground plant program went forward and in a massive way and continues right down to, the, to this year. Uh, the underground component of the American military apparatus is sophisticated and large. We don't know the true scale of it, but I can tell you from my research, uh, it's very large in scope, well-funded and deep, and a lot of it is very highly secretive. Now, as regards the magnetic levitation train, deep underground train system, there were a number of patents given for this type of technology, including going back to the post-Civil War period in the United States, the, the founding editor of the Scientific American Journal in the United States was a man named Alfred Eli Beach. And already in the late 1860s, 1869, he proved the technical feasibility of underground pneumatic vacuum tube trains. He built a early, rather low-speed, steam-powered prototype beneath downtown New York City, beneath Broadway in Manhattan. Now, his work uh, was state-of-the-art in the 1860s. It's been carried so much further. Other patents were taken out uh, in the post-World War II period by Robert Goddard, the father of, of modern rocketry. In his concept, a, a very high-speed <coughs> maglev train would have gone coast-to-coast in North America in 10 minutes from New York City to San Francisco. Well, that's a lot better than Mach 2, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it's, it's really screaming. I think it's something like, um, well, that's about 2,500 miles. So to do that, that's about, what, 10, uh, well, 12,000? Um, 12, 600 miles, miles is, uh, Mach 1 is 600, correct? So, uh, <coughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot. Let's put it that way. Now, it's uh, really and, screaming. And these, but there and, were others. There were others. Robert Salter for the Rand Corporation came out with a study back in the 1980s, I think it was, with a very similar system that would go coast to coast in about 20 minutes, but there would be a couple of stops along the way with branch lines. And then in the between about the late 1960s and early 1980s, there was something called a very high-speed transit um, interagency um, study, study group in the United States. It involved major universities, engineering departments, some of the major transit companies and and transport agencies in the United States, military agencies, independent researchers and engineers. And 
for the purpose of establishing a, a high-speed deep underground uh, tube train shuttle system in the north, so-called northeast corridor of the United States. That was a very active literature for 10 or 15 years, and I, I got a lot of it and mentioned some of it in my, my second and third books. And then it all went away. But don't you know, it all went away just a few years before we started hearing rumors of a high-speed underground um, maglev tube shuttle train network in North America. My presumption is that um, there were advances made and that some type of system like this exists. I, I think they did do it. It would explain a lot of this, of these vast sums of a black budget money that no one can seem to account for. Well, some say it's about $1.25 trillion per year uh, going into this. It could be more. It could be more. And right now, with the so-called um, quantitative easing, the world's central banks, and no one more so than the Federal Reserve Bank in New York City, uh, run out of God knows where as a real control center. But they are uh, just injecting trillions of dollars uh, into high finance, not into your pocket and uh, not into my pocket, but into the pockets of someone somewhere. The, the open economy on this planet cannot absorb that amount of money. So where is it going? You see, that's the question. It's certainly not going into any open public works or into any open type of mainstream economy, shall we say. It's being printed up and injected by vast quantities into somewhere to do something. And and one of the best bets is that, for whatever reason, um, it's going into these vastly funded projects that sure. are not publicly discussed. I've got about five minutes here, and I have a couple of key questions. One is, the uniform um, in, in these um, underground bases, is there, in fact... Uh, you know, a, um, I, I'm remembering that the the lines from Ned Beatty in Network: "There is no West. There is no, you know, uh, uh, um, Middle East. There is no the United States." In other words, when you get to, into these underground bases, is there even uh, an allegiance to the United States uh, Navy or the the uh, you know the German Army, or is it all just one? I, you know, I can't answer that. Truthfully, because I'm not on the inside, and those who are on the who are on the inside can't answer it either, because they're so constrained in what they can say and who they can talk to, if they even come up topside from the under underground and undersea facilities. What I can tell you that in general, from what I, my research indicates to me and some conversations I've had along the way with a variety of people, is that. Yeah, when you get into that world, you're way down Alice's rabbit hole, literally. And uh, whatever rules you think apply in the Canadian government or the American government or at the UN or at the Organization of American States don't apply. You're in another realm entirely that has few points of correspondence with experience in our everyday life, in our ordinary everyday life. Uh, as for uniforms, that I don't know either. There are a lot of factions. I would presume that the, the Navy has its own facilities. The United States Marine Corps has its own facilities. The NSA has its own facilities. Sure. The Federal Reserve does. Some of the ETs have their own facilities. The Russians have their facilities and so forth. 
I would expect a lot of this is some of it is is um, interpenetrating and mutually cooperative, but some of it isn't. You know, these factions, and there are many factions, factions within factions. It's like a, a Russian doll or like peeling an onion. You, 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 you get down to one layer only to perceive that there's yet another layer. And I don't know how deep they go. I don't know all of the agencies involved. I know some of them. And I don't think anyone does. No. The final question. I've got about two minutes here. Um, the, the capability, the military capability that they have at their disposal, I mean, you're talking about these huge, <coughs> these huge triangular craft, you know, miles wide in some cases. We are not seeing these obviously being utilized in any, any war theater around the planet. Um, so what does that mean? Does that mean that everything that's going on uh, above ground in terms of local skirmishes and so forth, that's just, uh, you know, just a staged managed events? Because obviously if these groups that have these underground bases and the technology, uh, I mean, they've got this planet locked down. So w- w- what does that say about, you know, the, the current state of geopolitics and, and, and local wars and so forth? Show and tell to a certain extent. Um, or maybe to a large extent. One of the things, you know, um, one of the reasons for my coming to South America was was to involve myself in South American shamanism, at least to a degree. And one of the things that ayahuasca, for example, showed me is that this whole so-called reality in which we live is rigged up, down, and sideways. It, It is fake, false, and fraudulent beyond all belief. And all I can tell you is that what you think you know when you look at around at the world, the understanding you think you have of how things run, Richard, it ain't that way. No, I, uh, <laughs> I would concur. I would concur. I'm just scrabbling around in the dark trying to, uh, to piece we, it together. We're doing, the best, we're doing the best we can with insufficient data points, and that is by design. What final question? I mean, by some estimates, there are 129 of these underground uh, bases, and and I don't know where that information comes oh, I think from. More, but I, I think more than that. What, but 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 what is what are they preparing for? What is the are they preparing for? Some? Well, mul- multiple things, Richard. Any given base may have more than one function. One base may have a, a command, control, and communication function. Another base may be primarily a nuclear weapons storage and deployment base. Another base may be primarily a, a diplomatic sort of facility. Another may, base may be to store government records in great security, and these types of facilities exist. Another base may be uh, intended as a kind of diplomat, diplomatic exchange point be, between an alien group and terrestrial groups. Another base may be for clandestine uranium and gold mining. Okay, on that um, note, uh, sorry, Richard, i got to jump in. We are uh, at the end. Uh, let me just direct people to your website, eventhorizonchronicle.blogspot.com. That's correct. Eventhorizonchronicle.blogspot.com. I've linked up to it at richardserrett.com. Just click on tonight's guest, Dr. Richard Sauter. Always a pleasure. We will do it again if you're good for that. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. All right. My thanks to Tim Spreen for technical production, all of you for listening at home. Back next week, uh, we will talk about the 47th anniversary of the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy uh, with uh, John Kerner on the program uh, and much more. 
In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.